0: This is Circulating Ideas, episode 218. My name is Steve Thomas, and my guests today are the 2022 presidential candidates for the American Library Association, Emily Drabinsky and Kelvin Watson. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. And don't forget to sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter You can find that link on the website or in the show notes for today's show. Emily, welcome to Circulating Ideas.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Steve. I'm excited. I've been a fan of your podcast and really thrilled to be taking my turn to chat with you today. So
0: I guess we'll jump right into it and ask why you are running for ALA president and what would be your priorities and as a Second follow-up question, (laughs) what things would you feel like you would need to de-emphasize to make space for your
1: priorities? Sure. So I think we're coming out of or still in a crisis on many fronts. We have the COVID-19 pandemic. We have worsening race relations in this country. We have a widening gap between rich and poor. And that is having an impact on all of us as library users, as library community members. And we need positions of leadership to take strong stands in defense of the things that all of us value. We need to bring together people to support and elevate the status and voice of library workers who are on the front lines of COVID, of book challenges, hostile takeovers of library boards, diminished and diminishing labor protections, including the loss of tenure and academic freedom at academic libraries, white nationalist racism attacks on critical race theory, which I'm putting in heavy scare quotes, and that I think we can understand as attacks on Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And I think I can do that. I think I can bring people together. My background is not only in libraries, but also in labor organizing work, and the kind of work that we do on labor side to build power together collectively is, I think, what the association needs right now. So my priorities are commitments to equity and the sharing of power, paying attention to and advocating for reinvestment in all parts of the public good, how we position libraries both to and with other forms of social infrastructure to borrow the term from Eric Kleinenberg, environmental sustainability and building capacity among ALA members to organize for themselves in their own workplaces. So, my priorities will be to draw on the good work that's already being done by Patty Wong around environmental work, Lessa Palayo-Lazada's focus in her presidential platform on the expanding the Allied Professional Association and focusing on library workers, amplifying and drawing on the models we have of our strong leaders of color and the work they've already done in the past many, many years, putting equity and inclusion at the heart of ALA. In terms of what I would de-emphasize, I don't know that we need to do that. Honestly, the president is one person, the association. There's lots of amazing work that I'm learning more about every day on the campaign trail happening across the association and the divisions, roundtables, working groups, task forces. And really, I think what ALE needs to do is get out of the way of our colleagues. So if I were to de-emphasize anything, it would be the kinds of barriers and hierarchies that we seem to maintain that just get in our own way.
0: Thank you. You mentioned the upcoming president is going to be focused a lot on the Allied Professional Association. So what would you do to advocate for library workers, specifically those dealing with COVID, burnout, and especially all the right-to-read challenges we're getting in school libraries, especially now, but surely to move into public libraries soon?
1: Yeah, and into academic libraries. I mean, the assaults are intense and intensifying. I would say that libraries are their workers. That's what libraries are. Otherwise, we're just talking about supporting buildings. And I think that's not something I got into this line of work to do, even though I really value our space. And I think COVID tells us how important our space is to our community members. So they matter a lot. But libraries are the people who refill the toner, who teach information literacy classes, put a book in a child's hand, put a book in my child's hand. The people who remind patrons to put their masks on, who negotiate with vendors, order materials, process them, catalog them, maintain the massive amount of metadata, shelve books, teach with books, read books, translate them, repair them. ALA is the people who schedule the desk shifts, approve our timesheets, cover shelves with tarps when there is a leak, remember our birthdays, plan our office parties. That's what the American Library Association is about. It's about people. And it's about library workers. So advocacy through APA is a priority for the incoming president, and I would be overjoyed to work on and extend Les' initiatives. And then from where I'm coming from on the labor side, it's equipping library workers with the skills necessary for addressing the challenges they face, which are by definition local. As someone who's been on strike, who's been locked out by my employer, I know that organizing to fight back against those who would prefer a world without libraries at all, because I think that's really what these people want, this world without libraries, it takes a set of skills that we can teach each other. Things like organizing conversations, shaping complaints into demands, developing campaigns, those are the skills we all need. Organizing people is my priority uh, in this campaign. What I'm doing as I campaign for ALA president and if elected, what I I would carry into the role. And so it's slightly different from advocacy. An advocacy model is often about or on behalf of others. But what I think we need right now are the tools to build power for ourselves in our workplaces. And that would be my strategy for, for advocacy.
0: So what do you see as the biggest challenges coming to libraries in the next couple of years? And how would you, as ALA president, lead the profession to address them?
1: So there are no shortages of challenges coming at us. At the local level, we're seeing attacks on funding libraries across the ecosystem, challenges to our expertise and authority, ongoing and intensifying abandonment of the public sphere, not just libraries, but other forms of public infrastructure, There's going to be a new presidential election on the horizon, and I think we need to be prepared for things to get even worse before they get better. So as ALA president, I think we need to think about the stories we tell ourselves about our work. Our work is essential. It matters. It's important. We need support from our association. We need to know that ALA has our back. We need to keep our jobs, and then we need the tools to do our jobs. We need to build our organizing and mobilizing skills. So I think back to Pat Schumann's tenure as president. And her focus back then on media training and advocacy skills for everybody in the field, not just a select few. So I envision organizing training like I've had myself as a union activist for everyone who needs the capacity to fight back. And I think that's all of us. So Lessa has the needs of library workers at the heart of her presidential platform. So I see myself connecting to the work she'll undertake next year. We'll see what that is. And we also need to tell better public stories. We need to be loud. We need to be bold. We need to connect what we care about across the association to our legislative agenda. I think ALA does yeoman's work, moving the needle on things like textbook pricing, broadband for tribal libraries, funding for IMLS and other federal initiatives. And I think that agenda needs to be shaped by the membership. So finding ways for library workers to advance their concerns to the Washington office would have to be a focus of my tenure. There's a tendency to get internal. I've served a term on ALA Council and found the internal focus to be challenging. So how are we going to do more, do better? How are we going to change the structure of the association when people on the outside know libraries and they think about them as nostalgic, but how can we talk about them and link libraries to the other things that people need? And I really think COVID gives us an opening for that, right? Because everybody sees that it turns out that we need childcare. And we need it to be freely available and collectively managed in order for any of us to do anything in our lives. And so Mm -hmm. libraries are the same. The demand, the push to open libraries during COVID-19 is partly a recognition that they are the last remaining public infrastructure that all of us have equitable access to. So we need to capitalize on this moment and connect libraries to the other kinds of social struggle and political struggle that we see happening outside of us. We need to both advocate for more public investment in structures other than us, and then advocate for the restoration of our funding so that we can do what we do. At the end of the day, I'm kind of a traditionalist. I think the library is there to like collect information and help people access it. And it's where I go to pick up a novel to read and take my kid for story time. Libraries, I don't, I don't think need to be innovative. They just need to be funded such that they can do what they're intended to do. And the rest of the public sphere has to be equally well-funded so that we don't have to pick up all the slack.
0: What should ALA's role be in setting guidance for not just public libraries and any libraries in disaster situations?
1: I think we can all agree that library workers must be kept safe. I think we can also agree that libraries are essential to the communities they serve. And I think ALA plays a significant role in making sure that everyone in the country knows that and knows that it's a fair demand that we be kept safe when we're working. If we're going to be treated like frontline workers in moments of crisis, we need to be kept safe while doing that work. We need to be fairly compensated. We need to understand why our institutions and our cities and towns and school boards are pressing us into service. Why are they doing that? ALA shapes national conversations, and I think it's entirely fair to demand that the association push for workplace protections. It's also why ALA must push for climate justice, We can't do our jobs safely if our buildings are flooded or on fire. But of course, ALA also can't dictate what all libraries do. All of us are working within and against sets of local constraints that only we really understand. What the association can do is support the fights of library workers by developing policy statements that respond to the realities we're facing. Here at the City University of New York, where I work, we're looking to push for a fine-free library system, and we put together our PowerPoint to yet make, make the case yet again, and we turn to ALA's policy documents as a way of making our case and showing that we're outside the norm of our national association. So I think that's the thing that ALA can do. But we also have to understand that those policy statements don't produce change on their own, that they're tools that organized workers can use in local fights and struggles to get the change that they need in their libraries. So we have to build the organizing skills of our members so they know how to mobilize association work on behalf of their own concerns.
0: How can ALA better support libraries in addressing the issues of recruiting and retaining people of color, especially when those new to the field sometimes feel that those workplaces are not equitable and inclusive? We can do recruiting, but we can't retain if they get into a job and then all of a sudden they feel like outsiders.
1: Right. I think power in our libraries and power in the association has to be distributed more equitably. We have lots of documents, actually quite a few in big ALA, but also in the divisions proclaiming our commitment to racial equity, but the field remains almost 90% white. And I think that's because documents are tools and they don't make change by themselves. It's like when you're organizing with your union, you're putting together a petition, but the petition is meant to gather people together to Make sure you've got everybody's name, phone number, and email address so that you have one-on-one conversations with people about what you're petitioning about and for, and then you use the power that you've built through that document to do the real work of making change. They don't make change by themselves. So, for example, when I took over the book review section of college and research libraries a year and change ago, almost all of the reviewers were white. So that means that white perspectives dominate the discursive space of academic libraries. So I went into the position with the intention of changing that. And it wasn't hard to do. I selected BIPOC reviewers rather than white ones. It's not complicated. So I know that there are lots of examples of people doing that in their own libraries, in the association. We need lots more examples like that. We need to share them, talk about how we made those decisions, the work that goes into that. And we need to demand more. Uh, of that kind of concrete. But you can only get those changes if you organize for them. It's not enough to be right. It's not enough to have the good idea. It's not enough to all agree. We can't divest ourselves of white racial power by saying that we want to do that. We have to actually make material differences in the lives of people. And I happen to believe that can only be done through the building and wielding of collective power.
0: And you mentioned equitable access earlier. What does that concept mean to you. And I was reading over the code of ethics trying to remember exactly the wording. They just added a principle to it. And it talks about affirming the inherent dignity and rights of every person. So how does that fit into equitable access for you?
1: Yeah, I think sometimes we think equal means same, but equitable access can't be one size fits all. Everybody needs something different. So inclusivity is about recognizing and acknowledging difference that our lived realities are not all the same. So thinking about the association, I think about equitable access to the tools of power that are inside of ALA, and it means things like lowering the bar for engagement, making membership less expensive, developing ways for folks to share and setting priorities and making decisions, even if they can't travel to ALA conferences. It means being an association that better represents all of its members because it listens better to all of its members. And here's the difference that people bring to the conversation. We know member numbers are in decline. Is that because we're not communicating well enough about our value? Or does it mean that we're not actively affirming the dignity and rights of all library workers by organizing them into the association and into their own power at work? For me, that's equity work. It's the organizing of people across difference around shared goals, values, and commitments. That would be what equity would mean for me.
0: And can you speak on your views on the concept of neutrality in libraries?
1: I have kind of a short answer. There's no such thing. Any of us on the outside of dominant, white, heteronormative, capitalist, ageist, ableist, monolingual, xenophobic, subtler colonialist, hegemonic structures knows that. I know it. Kelvin knows it. We both advanced our positions at ALA a few years ago on a program assembled by Jim Neal. I think we need to talk less about neutrality and more about how power works and how to build our own so we can collect, describe, share, and preserve information on behalf of shared commitments and values in our local communities. So just as ALA can't set policy in a disaster for all libraries, they can't define what it means to be neutral or what that value means in a particular given context. We're all facing different contexts and constraints. The terrain of struggle is different for everybody. So the idea that we can have a single guiding vision of what would be neutral doesn't make a lot of sense to me.
0: I feel like just reading the code of ethics where it's like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. It's like we talk about, oh, we're completely objective. But then we added this new thing that says we're going to treat affirm the inherent dignity and rights of every person. It's not realistic.
1: (laughs) And it's not a materialist analysis, which is also what I would bring to it. I can't actually collect every book or let everybody use the meeting room. I have a limited book budget. I have a limited number of meeting rooms. There's a limited time on the calendar. So where are we putting our resources? Where are we investing them with the understanding that they're limited in scope? Am I going to give them to everybody equally? It doesn't make any sense. I can't do that because there's I've got to prioritize. And that's part of what it is to be a library worker. We think about that all the time. We're thinking about our communities and our users and what they need and what's available and how we're going to connect people to resources. So that means that we are always making decisions. So when people say I'm objective, I'm neutral, it means that they're not copying to whatever the sort of set of priorities that they're working from, because we're all working from them. And anybody who's on the outside, and I'd argue that's the vast majority of us are on the outside of this sort of fantastic idea of a neutral public that doesn't exist in the real world. This is not something controversial.
0: I feel like neutrality is a cop-out a way of trying to stop yourself from having to make a decision, but then not making a decision is making a decision.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and the only people I ever hear advancing neutrality as a value are people who get paid a lot of money to make hard decisions. You've got to make the hard decision here. That's what you're getting paid for.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, So in your job that you have currently, how do you uh, encourage your staff to succeed? And how would you use those skills to improve ALA, its staff and members?
1: First, I'd say they're not my staff, That we have to get away from the kinds of paternalistic hierarchies that are embedded in our language itself, in the ways that we talk about the workplace, the language we use when we talk about our relationships to our colleagues. So I've been at the head of this library for just two years, and most of my life has been spent as a rank-and-file librarian, frontline, reference desk worker, classroom teacher. And in my time here in this leadership position, we've worked together to flatten the organizational structure so that decision-making power is distributed across more of us. I'm also a union man, so I have enforced our contract now that I'm on the management side. So I put in the bureaucratic work to reclassify staff so they're compensated fairly for their work. So I think that's one of the advantages of having a union in place is that we all have terms of collectively bargained working conditions. And as a manager, I can enforce that, which makes everybody's life better at work. I talk to everybody all the time, big believer in one-on-one conversations. So a president is only ahead head of ALA for a year and everybody I talk to says that the year goes really fast. Like you get started and then it's over. So I think what I would use my Skills to do would be to organize more conversations between different kinds of people about what people need, synthesizing those demands so we can deliver on what library workers need from an organization like ours. So, those skills are listening, 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 and putting people into conversation who might not know that they have things in common that they need to talk about directly.
0: I do appreciate you correcting that language there.
1: I use that language all the time. It's so ready. Like the boss would have their staff and undoing that and thinking about new ways to consider and understand our social relations. Lifetime project.
0: Like you said, that year goes by fast. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what do you hope the lasting impact of your term will be?
1: That more of us understand what collective power is and how to build it and how to wield it than did before I got here.
0: How would you support your opponent's agenda if you don't win this election?
1: I am committed to building worker power, and I will do that, win or lose. This is a campaign that's about organizing and about putting that vision forward. I'll keep doing that at my own institution. I'll keep doing that inside of ALA. Kelvin and I want very similar things for libraries. We want equitable access. We want people to be able to have sustainable careers. We want academic freedom. We want racial exclusions to be a thing of the past. And so wherever I could fit myself into that work is where I would do it. Kelvin and I have been in conversation and I have a lot of respect for him. And I think the feeling is mutual. And we're all here to work on a shared project of libraries across the ecosystem as community goods. So we'll do that together. We just have different sort of approaches and ways of thinking about how uh, to get things done.
0: How can listeners find out more about you and your candidacy online if they wanted to contact you or just find out more about what you have to say?
1: Sure, Twitter, I'm very active on it. My website is emilydrabinski.com and you'll see my campaign platform and all the ways that you can join us. We hold weekly campaign calls. They're open to everyone and I encourage people to come join. We're having a great time. We're doing a lot of laughing and we're making a lot of really smart and good analysis collectively through that. We have a Slack so just reach out. I'm trying to be maximally open and enthusiastic. My commitment right now is to this race. So be in touch.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Emily, and good luck in the election. And I hope everybody out there goes and votes. If you are an ALA member. and if you're not an ALA member, maybe listening to this, and if you hear Emily about the things that ALA can do, if you join, you can help make those things happen.
1: <laughs> thank you so much, Steven. Thank you for all your work on behalf of all of us and sharing ideas. It's a real value, and I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day.
0: Kelvin, welcome to Circulating Ideas.
2: Thank you for having me, Steve.
0: So we're having this episode to talk about why you want to be ALA president. So why do you want to be ALA president, and what would be
2: your priorities So I'm running for ALA president because I believe in the American Library Association and the work of our member association to serve our library ecosystem, to have positive impacts on the communities and the people that we serve. All library workers are important from the leaders on down working together as a team, top down, bottom up and across. We all continue to make a difference every day in our communities and I've had the honor to work with others to do this, responding to current challenges and opportunities, but looking at what's the future. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to work on ALA committees, task forces, roundtables. I also served as BCLA president, and my term as a PLA director. But this will give me an opportunity to even give more back to the American Library Association of what I've been able to glean and and get from the association. So um, leadership to me includes organizing, collaboration, strategic vision, and execution. These would be my priorities. And they would circle around membership retention and expansion, working with ALA finances, working with executive director, Tracy Hall, ALA staff, the uh, ALA treasurer, and of course, our diverse membership, delivering through... collaborations and partnerships across the library ecosystem, along with our advocates, our allies, and what I call our co-conspirators. Intellectual freedom and censorship issues will be key issues to me to organize around with a plan to focus both locally and nationally, and sustainability will also be a priority.
0: Is there anything that you feel that ALA is currently doing that you'd need to de-emphasize to make room for your priorities?
2: So as I think about de-emphasizing anything, as ALA president, president president-elect, I don't want to determine what I would de-emphasize. I really want to hear from our members as I'm listening now and will continue to do so. And then that's how we would develop the priorities, not just ALA doing this alone, because we need to have many more allies and advocates on our side telling our story, Mm -hmm. what libraries really do and, and how we get our work done.
0: Where do you see the biggest challenges to libraries coming from in the coming years, and how would you as ALA president uh, lead the profession
2: to help address those? The future is about increasing engagement, taking concrete action, and delivering results. This has been a blueprint for my success in my career over the years of the many libraries that I've had the opportunity to work in as well as lead with our workers. Intellectual freedom and censorship will be key issues to organize around with a plan to, again, focus both locally and nationally. That's the biggest challenge that we're facing right now. We're seeing lots of conversation about what's happening in local schools, for example. But I also just read the other day where there were some challenges in Lafayette, Louisiana, public library, having challenges where uh, new board members were elected and they're focusing on Not only censoring, but actually changing the mission of the library. And so that is the big challenge for us that we need to address. And that's why I talk about local activation of our allies. Not to be activists, but to really activate and support the libraries locally and doing it at the state level. And in ALA, being a place that can help energize and to provide those tools and resources. Sustainability is also going to be a big challenge. Sustainability, Steve, is not just about the environment. It's about funding. It's about people. It's about social justice. It's about advocacy. A successful ALA presidency, to me, would mean a fundamental transformation, again, of our engagement, inclusivity, and approach to advocacy. We must continue to share the stories and the truth about the role of libraries and library workers. What national leaders and influencers need to know about how libraries change people's lives. What new revenue sources can we tap into to fund real change? Again, things that I've done at multiple libraries. All of these questions will help drive those expanded services. And of course, attracting a diverse membership. I'm one of a few. African-American, male library directors? How do we continue to increase diversity in our library so that the leadership and the workers look more like the communities that we serve? So we have to be intentional and strategic in serving. And so those will be the challenges so that we can develop impactful resources in concert with our partners, advocates, and allies.
0: ALA in general supports libraries as a profession, as institutions, but ALA's president also serves as president of the ALA Allied Professional Association. And in that role, there's more direct advocacy for library workers. Mm -hmm. Um, How would you advocate for them in that ALA, APA president role?
2: So I would do that because I'm a committed leader. And as a committed leader, I pride myself on being an active listener a problem solver, and a relationship builder. I talked about that collaboration and organizing as a leader. And so I'll I'll bring these skills and leveraging my leadership abilities to ALA as the president. And so looking at and listening and understanding the members' concerns, and this is what I've done in libraries. I came to Las Vegas during COVID last year. So immediately jumped in, I've learned, again, the power of support and new thinking around partnering and working with staff, bringing staff in. We've actually created a wellness program for staff, and it came from them, the workers, asking for those resources. The ALI, Ally Professional Association, all library workers, we've gone through a post-traumatic stress <laughs> right? <laughs> from, from COVID and having to do more with less, but also having to pivot from the services that we have been traditionally doing and offering to the community. So I would go in and, you know, and as president and acknowledge first the toll that the pandemic has taken on library workers, but also continue to work to educate our staff around mental health resources that are available, looking at Opportunities again with ALA Executive Director Tracy Hall. How do we have a national ALA EAP, Employee Assistance Program? That is where I see myself bringing some practical, pragmatic. Here's what we've already done. My track record has shown everybody that I know how to get things done in a year. And that's again through the partnerships, collaboration, and so increasing funding to ALA APA, right? How do we do that? You've probably heard about one of my initiatives where I've already, in the campaigning season, received over $50,000 in pledges towards a worker relocation program. That's for workers who need assistance to pay the first and last month's rent, for example, or pay for food, right? That's, again, how do you move that? And since this fund would be a part of ALA... This is in partnership, certainly, that we can have with ALA APA.
0: You know, we mentioned PTSD. It's almost like we're in the middle of TSD. It's like we're still being traumatized.
2: (laughs) Yes. You have to show leadership. And what I'll point out to you, Steve, is that when you look at Las Vegas Park County Library District in the past year, how many things that we've been able to accomplish in COVID, and I say we, because it's the library staff, the workers that I work with, to set a vision. We've implemented a strategic plan. We call it Strategic Playbook 2026. It's an active strategy where everybody is included. It's, It's inclusive from top down, bottom up, and as I say, across the organization, but it's focused on delivering results
0: what kind of role do you feel that ALA has in setting guidance for public libraries in disaster situations like COVID-19?
2: I have direct experience here (laughs) from Queens and Broward where public libraries supported and support the communities like during Hurricane Sandy in New York and during Hurricane Irma where I was the library director doing both. And we had to establish disaster plans and continuing operations plans. We were actually already prepared It wasn't just on how to continue delivering services when services were, quote unquote, coming back online. But the disaster plan also were about the collections as well. So this real world direct experience is what I would bring to ALA. Even during shootings, any incident that occurred in Broward, we had an emergency plan that was established that the staff knew about we called it a COOP, the continuing operations plan, but how do you put it you know, in an emergency? How do you move quickly to actually implement that? And so in times of troubles, libraries, we're community centers, we're the anchor, right? And so being proactive in creating these crisis plans and communication plans for library spaces, this is what I've done before, active shooter training. I rolled that out as Broward County Libraries Director. After Parkland, we did active shooter training, myself included, right? You know, run, hide, fight, right? <laughs> so right, so yeah. that, that literally the only agency to do that training, which set a model then for other county agencies to follow. So again, I've got practical experience to put actions into place, to bring as ALA president, to get people around, not only uh, talking again, talking about why they are important, but actually giving examples of why they're important as well.
0: Can you speak on your views on the concept of neutrality in libraries?
2: (laughs) Yeah, this this one is definitely a a hot button (laughs) topic (laughs) with differing views. And I think people's views in the profession sometimes come from where they are or their roles. So I'm going to speak specifically about public library. And so if we're talking about the concept of neutrality when it comes to materials, and services in collection development. In public libraries, we provide for the needs of the entire community we serve. Two million people here, I serve. That's a whole lot of different views, whole lot of different needs, right? So we rely on that collection development policy that we have in place to guide us where materials are evaluated by our professional librarians for their objectivity. When it comes to nonfiction material, they evaluated for accuracy, for example, validity, relevancy, currency. So we cover in the public library every walk of life. So I believe in the right of intellectual freedom and that there should never be a suppression of the free exchange of ideas. With accurate information and the opportunity to discover differing views. Exposing a wide audience to information and resources on the importance of diversity and equity, for example have actually helped to increase the awareness about the urgency of these issues. Practical experience after the killing of George Floyd, where I did that in Broward, where we exposed the community to different resources that they hadn't been previously exposed to. But I'll say, Steve, that I do have one concern about the concept of neutrality. And it it worries me that libraries could have an ability to take a non-stance on important issues and avoid accountability by abdicating any ethical responsibility that we have. Claiming neutrality can endanger us as an institution by resulting uh, in an unconscious adoption of values of the dominant political model and framework. And simply put, what I like to say is that we can't be neutral on social and political issues that impact our patrons, our customers, the people that we serve, because we, for example, those social and political issues impact us. And so that's where I stand. I mean, it's a hard one to say that I'm open to intellectual freedom. As library director, I I don't bring my personal views like some of these individuals who are making decisions is about censorship in schools and other public libraries. As the librarian, I'd be doing the same thing to me that they're doing. <laughs> if I brought my personal views or how I felt about things into the discussion, so that's why I rely on the collection development policy. My own personal views. I have to try to balance it, and it is a balancing act. It's a t- it's a tough balancing act, actually, for libraries. There's no easy answer to it again, from public libraries, you're going to definitely have some differing views and opinions yeah. and what people want to see. And so yeah. I appreciate the question. I know it's difficult and folks probably fall on different sides of it.
0: Well, and, and there's a big difference between you're not representing my point of view in your library as opposed to I don't like your side. You need to take it out of the library. It's not like they're feeling excluded. They just want the other side out. That's yes, not the same thing.
2: Yeah, so I'm going to always focus on the side of inclusivity, and have the conversations like I had this week with a reporter from the Las Vegas Sun, and I pointed out in schools, for example, when I was going to school, how my life was influenced by titles like Native Son, right, To Kill a Mockingbird, books that schools are working to ban right now. I learned from them. As an African-American man, right? Mm -hmm. And boy at that time, right? And so there's value in, in having those resources available to share those different views, not just because they're different views, but we can certainly learn from those views as well.
0: Right. And on the nonfiction side of that, that doesn't mean that we just carry science (laughs) books that say flat Earth is correct or germ germ theory is not how diseases are spread. I I always bring up now that we raced to get rid of all those Pluto is a planet books. (laughs) Like librarians were running to do that and everybody loves Pluto. But we all ran to get rid of those books because that was what was accurate. So we're not going to carry Holocaust denial because of course, because it's not accurate.
2: Again, that nonfiction evaluation of accuracy validity, relevancy, and currency. That's why you use those as a way to evaluate those resources. Because to your point, what people are even doing around critical race theory, people are trying to erase history, Mm -hmm. right? They're trying to erase history. And it's becoming more politicized. And that is the problem. That is the problem. So, and if libraries we have a balancing act, again, because we serve, especially public libraries, we serve broad communities, school libraries, same academics, that's there as well, but I'm for freedom of speech, different views, I wouldn't be where I am without having and learning from those differing views.
0: How can ALA better support libraries and related institutions? in addressing issues of recruitment and retaining people of color, especially when the people new to the field sometimes experience workplaces that are not equitable or inclusive?
2: ALA can address that issue. And I'll say again, some ways that I've addressed that issue. I recently spoke about this on a diversity panel. Recruiting is one, but retaining is really the harder part. And so we have to focus on the retention part. ALA, just like we need to retain our members. We have to have ways for individuals to find a place, but also support them. So I actively support equity for all and have been involved in numerous initiatives that support equity, diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and access. So if I were elected to ALA president, but I'm going to continue to do this regardless, I would assist libraries in implementing programs that I've found to be successful. So currently, when you talk about what happens as a library director here in Las Vegas. I am the executive director, but I also am the chief diversity officer. (laughs) And that's what I immediately said as the leader. I'm the chief diversity officer. And that's in my role as executive director. So I've provided solutions to eliminate biases in job descriptions, in the interviewing process, for example, establishing retention plans, and now I'm working on and in, in introducing ways for to so intentionally expand our candidate pool. I participated in the branch manager interviews. We had the largest diverse pool of candidates that we've ever had, as I understand it. While at Broward County Libraries, I served as the 2020 Florida Library Association co-chair for their Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Accessibility Task Force, which was established to bring BIPOC and LGBTQ plus individuals together to make our, our membership ideals more pervasive within FLA. Within a short period of time, this was in 2020, I came here in 2021. Within a short time, we not only developed the plan, but we actually implemented the plan in a year. Also, at, at Broward County Libraries, I led the charge in making sure that all of our staff, nearly 700 library workers, we all attended the LGBTQIA plus 101 proficiency training. I made it mandatory as a requirement for all employees. We also completed EDI collection work, programming and marketing audits around diversity as well. And so, again, these are things that can scale up by making it available. I'm not 100% sure if ALA is offering that training, but I know where to get the training because we outsourced it. This was not internal staff training. We actually paid an organization, SunServe, to actually deliver this training to all of our staff. This is how you educate others because diversity, equity, inclusion, it's not a buzzword. Oh, it's not a buzz term. We have to be intentional about it. And so that's the place where having tough conversations, challenging library directors like myself, library directors that don't look like me, to look at their staff. We talked about statements earlier. After George Floyd was murdered, there were lots of organizations, libraries included, companies who made statements. I'll tell you the story, a true story. I didn't make a statement. We didn't write a statement down. And I was asked why I didn't make a statement. And my response was we didn't need to make a statement. I didn't need to make a statement because we were already making a statement. With our diversity programming, we were already making a statement because we were leading the way in saying the statement was the work. And so when you're doing this work around institutions addressing, Retention. Like Nike said, just do it. Yeah. I mean, you got to walk the
0: walks.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And that's why I'm giving you examples of how I've I've walked the walk. I'm walking the walk every day as a leader in this profession. How would I support my opponent's agenda? I, I know that was something that somebody uh, wanted us to answer. So Emily and I've had some discussions about this already, both on the phone. We talked about it in forums and we recognize how our platforms differ. My platform is more holistic. Hers is really focused on more directly around organizing and using her union experience and around ALA workers, which is not something that I'm excluding. So in the big picture, we're both working have a positive impact on the ALA membership and that ultimately would result in positive impacts on the communities that we serve. I'm focused on uniting, not dividing, and I want to create more tools that remove barriers of access, inclusivity, retention. And so I know that we'll support each other in the long term into the future. I've offered my support to her and my initiatives, again, are not uh, excluding library workers. It's actually more inclusive because I've actually added that I'm a library worker too. I've got an MLS. I just hold the role of the director. We're one team and we all work together to get this done. So we actually are in this together all library staff, all workers. So that's where I plan on helping support her. If she wins, I'm here to do that.
0: ALA presidential elections are not like national presidential (laughs) elections. (laughs) It's basically, we have a different lens that we're looking through the same issues at and we all have the same end goal of wanting to help the community and just a different way of doing it so voters decide which way would you prefer it gets done. But that's right. everybody gets along.
2: We have our differing, I like how you said it, differing lenses. My lens is from, I've had more opportunities to be in leadership roles, Mm -hmm. really recognizing that leadership is how do you bring people together, all people? And that's the approach. That, that's the lens that I have. And so that's what I would bring to LA presidency.
0: How can listeners learn more about you and your candidacy online?
2: So I've created a website. It's kelvinwatson for librariescom Kelvin, K-E-L-V-I-N, Watson, W-A-T-S-O-N, 4 F-O-R, libraries, dot com. It describes my record of leadership, dedication to serving the underserved, and examples of projects that I've initiated throughout my career that certainly my goals for ALA.
0: You can keep that URL around after the election, too. That's a good URL. That that is exactly
2: what my plan is, Steve.
0: (laughs) We do, of course, encourage everyone to go vote. And I hope that these um, interviews in this episode have helped people make their decisions. Thank you so much for coming on, Kelvin. Thank you so
2: much, Steve. It's been a pleasure.
0: Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guest, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening, and keep circulating your ideas.